Hello there, you're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. And we will be doing the first part of our director analysis on the highly influential and renowned Japanese director Akira Kurosawa. We're focusing on his dramas in this episode. The second part will focus on his samurai films. All right, we're going to go ahead and skip the news. There is news out there, but we're going to save that for next episode. Talk about all the revelations with DC and Marvel and Harrison Ford and all that jazz. We'll start with the box office breakdown for the weekend of October 7th to the 9th. In first place, Smile with 18.4 million. Incredible hold. It only had an 18% drop. It is now past 50 million domestic. A huge horror flick that just came out of nowhere and it is taking the box office by storm. Yeah, it blows my mind. I mean, that hold like that is incredible. We usually see upwards of 60% drop in the second weekend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 18% is astronomical. Indeed. Anyway, in second place, we have Lyle Lyle Crocodile with 11.4 million. Amsterdam with 6.4 million. The Woman King with 5 million. That brings its domestic total to 54 million. Not bad. Mm -hmm. And it's already beating out Don't Worry Darling, even though it came out a week before Don't Worry Darling. Uh, it is now at 3.5 million and 38 million domestic. So disappointing for everyone involved in that film. After that was James Cameron's Avatar with 2.7 million. Barbarian, another horror flick holding on quite well, 2.1 million. Bros with 2.1 million. Top Gun Maverick, it has fallen below 1 million, but still clinging on to the top 10, 805,000 for this weekend. Terrifier 2, also 805,000, just a slightly lower 805,000. Mm -hmm. And right outside the top 10, Bullet Train with 646000 But it was able to crack the century mark at the domestic box office with $102 million. Woo! So yeah, good for them. We are also going to skip the predictions for October 14th to the 16th because we already know what the truth is about the box office for that weekend. So we'll report it next week when our episode is actually on Halloween ends. So we'll see how it did at the box office. And we'll go ahead and jump right into the bio for Akira Kurosawa. We'll go through the first part of his uh, Hollywood career leading up to around 1965. So Dylan, why don't you take us through it? How much of Kurosawa's history do you know already um, before looking at all this stuff that I... I only know his filmography. Only gotcha, his filmography. Okay. Not much of his background. Only the movies he's made and when he's made them. So he was born in 1910, and he originally wanted to be a painter. He went to art school, and he painted in a lot of different Western styles, but that didn't really pan out. He gave up on that and instead became an assistant director in 1936. Then, after a few years of doing that, quite a few years, seven, he became a director in 1943. His early works include Sanshiro Sugata, which is a movie about uh, judo masters in the 1880s, and it was the first time he collaborated with Takashi Shimura, who we will see in all three of the movies today. Uh, he then made No Regrets for Our Youth in 1946 about Japanese militarism, Drunken Angel in 1948, which is his first big hit. It's about uh, 
post-war noir in Tokyo, which really was a big hit at the time. That, that was uh, a little bit after The Maltese Falcon, which was the last Hollywood noir film. So it's kind of like uh, a neo-noir, in a sense, happening there, which is pretty pretty cool. And that was his first collaboration with Toshiro Mifune, who we will see in two of these movies. One of these Indeed. movies. Two. 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 Yes. two of these movies. You're right. What am I saying? I'm a madman. Mm-hmm. And then he made his next film, Rashomon, which is one of the films we'll talk about in 1950. And that, of course, was his big hit on the international stage, garnered him widespread recognition and acclaim. It won the grand prize at the Venice Film Festival, and he won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. So a huge film. And then he followed that up with even more successes, including one that we'll talk about in this episode, Akiru. And then Seven Samurai, which we'll talk about in the Samurai episode. So that once again reaffirmed his talent and uh, his recognition on the global stage. He has also done a lot of adaptations of Western literature. So he's done Shakespeare works. So he made Throne of Blood based off of Macbeth. Um, We'll talk about a different. Yeah, that is the one. We'll talk about a different Shakespeare adaptation. You did. Um, But that's okay. He also did uh, The Idiot, which, of course, is from Dostoevsky. So, yeah, he was able to adapt a lot of that stuff, which makes sense given, again, his uh, interest and fascination with a lot of Western stuff, both in, like, painting, literature, um, and cinema as well, which we'll certainly talk about, I think, in the Samurai episode, but obviously a lot of back-and-forth exchanges between Westerns and Samurai flicks. Um, And then in 1960... He created his own production company, so made films like Yojimbo, High and Low, and Redbeard. But sadly, Japanese cinema was going through a major slump at that time in the 60s, and so he was finding it harder and harder to fund his films. And we will see in the next episode, when we pick up with his biography, um, what effect that had on the rest of his filmography. But at that point, at 1965, even with those struggles, he was already cemented as a world-class director he had major influence on hollywood again like i said the interplay between the westerns and samurai films many of his peers i mean so many of them kubrick fellini um tarkovsky so many people were admiring him and his work and then he of course influenced a lot of the new hollywood directors most prominently george lucas who you know, took a lot of inspiration from Throne of Blood specifically for Star Wars. So, yeah. You're shaking your head no. It was not Throne of Blood. Oh, it was Hidden Fortress. It was Hidden Fortress. There you go, yeah. Well, Star, Wars, sure is just, them, Star Wars is Fortress, just Macbeth. Exactly. <laughs> that would be a little... Star Wars is just Space Macbeth. Indeed. Um, but yeah, so already made his mark on cinema up to that point and so we'll talk about some of those films that happened within this era again the dramas specifically um and to also just mention some of his style and themes again those not directly related to the samurai stuff he collaborated frequently with uh the people that he initially started working with and then he got a new groove with them and just for like the next 20 films that he made he just kept working with the same people over and over um and it worked out quite well for him He also had a rotating group of screenwriters, which I thought was interesting. Um, So we'll see. There were five of them in total. We'll see a couple of them come up 
in the three films we're talking about this episode. But yeah, it was fascinating that he constantly worked with them. He would always have a screenplay credit as well. He was deeply involved in the screenwriting and um, giving a lot of detailed notes. But yeah, he did bring on screenwriters to help flesh out the rest of the scripts. Um, in terms of the frame and movement, he's, I think, most well known for that. There was, did you ever see this Dylan? Did you go through that phase where the YouTube video, every frame of painting, had a Kurosawa video? It was like I've seen those one. videos. I've never seen the Kurosawa one. Really? That's yeah. crazy. I think that's one of the most popular, I think. Um, but yeah, so that's the great video talking about the way that Kurosawa does his staging and blocking and how he always is including movement of both the characters mm -hmm. and the elements like the wind and the rain. Um, and the, so it's the movement always, of the elements using nature is going to become very even more important when we talk about the samurai films. But we'll get there next time. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, always very vibrant, always very meaningful. Um, what he has in the frame, and then his themes uh, as well tend to go towards what they call like a humanist cinema. Um, mm -hmm. So he's always focusing on like why can't people just be happy? What's keeping us from being able to? live our greatest lives our most enjoyable lives what is it that's keeping us from that um and so a lot of his films explore that and we'll see certainly in akiru how that comes up a lot so yeah anything else you wanted to bring up about style themes any observations you have made uh i just think kurosawa is one of my favorite filmmakers i've seen so many of his movies and i can't wait to watch all the rest of them one day soon and uh i just i think watching any of his movies you are just a student of a master when you're watching it i mean it's just incredible what he's able to do given the time period and it's incredible the way he manipulates the story with the frame i think it's just like just an absolute master class watching especially high and low we'll get to it but that first hour in the room where he's just manipulating the the framing it's, it's almost like you're watching a play it's so theatrical in a way that it's just mm -hmm. absolutely brilliant and then when we start talking about seven samurai in a long time when we get to that climactic battle in seven samurai i mean just the use of the framing of the characters in a lot of these shots just really really works for uh like amplifying amplifying like their power dynamics and what they're doing in that climactic scene and then in ron which we'll get to as well way 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 down the line i mean just one of the most epic pieces of cinema ever made just tip like taking the most grandeur scenes you could possibly imagine and shooting them as widely as possible and just sucking in all this light into the lens to create just the most brilliant and most saturated looking incredible pieces of cinema you'll ever see like i mean you think lawrence of arabia is grand just just you wait i mean it's just massive it's incredible so i mean he's just so dynamic he's just reaches such different ranges in all these movies it does make me sad that we're splitting them up into two but i mean we have to i mean there's just so many movies i want to talk about of his and it would be too hard not to but comparing the samurai to the non-samurai films is very interesting and we'll probably i'm sorry i just saw the username you put ryan <laughs> it took you that Ryan. long to notice. <laughs> yeah ryashaman indeed it's <laughs> pretty good but i i just wish we could compare the two i mean we probably will when we get to the samurai ones i mean i we just will, yeah. just it's just brilliant comparing the range that he has in these two different styles that he's going through here i mean it's incredible i mean rashomon is a good way to sort of bridge the two because it's not a samurai film but it definitely has elements of what he's using later in his samurai films in it 
because it's of the same time period and it still has that sort of lower budget drama that a lot of the other movies we're going to be talking about tonight have and very like like character driven storylines as opposed to epic samurai storylines that he's trying to focus on here so like Rashomon's going to be a good one to talk about so let's talk about it Rashomon was made in 1950 it was adapted from Inagrove and Rashomon which are both short stories by Ryanusuke Akutagawa and it was written by Kurosawa and Shinobu Hashimoto I mean just it's, it's the movie that put him on the map internationally it's it is brilliant. There are so many things I love about it. But I do have some mild critiques. You do? And we'll, you I do. Mild critiques for the master? Interesting. Very, very mild. And we'll get there. Indeed. But yes, Rashomon, certainly well known, I think, for being of that genre where the whole framing device is, it's one story told through various different perspectives. Um, and so... It is also like the crowning achievement of that sort of story. It's the one everyone refers back to whenever a different story comes out that is playing with that same sort of framing device. So, yeah, we'll go ahead and talk about that, each of the different stories, and how they all come together. But I do think it's interesting as well, The like they have that framing device. They have the framing device of the testimonials where they're all like flashing back to the testimonies that they gave at the trial um, and then the actual like present day storyline that's going on is the one witness the farmer guy the priest and then the one random passerby that comes through because he's hiding from the rain um, and so they're like cooped up together uh, under the building trying to get out of the rain and then they're talking about this event and reflecting on it and so we get the flashbacks to like the testimonies, the flashbacks to the actual event itself. And then we come back to the present where these characters are reflecting on it and discussing it. Um, and that to me is another part of the film that I really enjoy, as you know, as I'm sure the listeners know for mm -hmm. a long time. I just love rhetoric. I love debate. I love people having philosophical conversations. So yeah, them basically parsing out the like meanings and implications of the stories and the different perspectives that are being given. It's just so riveting to me to uh, get to hear all that stuff because it's the exact type of conversation we would be having, um, you know, like right out of the theater about a film. So it's nice that they're sort of doing that same thing. Um, so very identifiable for sure. But yeah, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm interested because I mean, Rashomon's been talked to death, I'm sure. It's not that complicated of a story anyway. It's a very straightforward mm -hmm. framing device. It's done extremely well. Like the way they execute it, I think is solid. It's not that long of a film. It's only like 90 minutes. So it's yeah. um, like the pacing, I think is really good. I'm curious about these critiques you have. Let's jump right in. My critiques <laughs> are, they're very small and it's mostly the execution of the story. Because I think the story itself, you look at it, it's brilliant. Mm. I think if you were read to read the script, you would say, yeah, this is, this is really well written. This is really good. I'm having a good time. Love it. Yes. My problem was the execution. And I think the reason I have a problem with it is... In what this way? Is, okay, what I'll get there. This, yeah. this, is, this is very early Kurosawa. This is one of his first films that he's been the director of. He became a director in 1943, and this is 1950. So it's one of his first movies. And I feel like 
compared to a lot of the other movies, compared to all the other movies we're going to talk about, I think that lack of experience shines through a little more than a lot of other directors do on some of their first movies. And it might be a lack of the technology of the time, but I feel like I feel like the execution in the scenes with the the flashback or the not the flashback, the the guys talking under the building with the rain. I feel like everything in those scenes is filmed really well. I think the framing is really well done. I think the uh the use of the rain is really well done. I think all the movement that's happening with the wind is really well done. And I think framing those characters the way they do while they're having those conversations is great. So I think those scenes are like pure Kurosawa, well done, perfect. Nice. I feel like I feel like sixty percent of the flashback scenes are only okay. I feel like maybe like maybe it's like half and half. Because you'd watch all of uh when Toshiro Mifune is telling the story because he's the first one to do it. Is he? Or is it the woodcutter? It's the woodcutter, well, but he barely talks about it. Yeah, so he doesn't really talk about the actual he main He talks about finding the body. found it, yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, so Toshiro Mifune does the first bit where he's talking about being the bandit, and he gets caught by the guy because he fell off the horse, which he claims because he was sick. And then he goes and he retells the actual event where he saw this woman, and then, you know, he took advantage of her, and then... She begged him to kill her husband, and so he did. Like he he's doing all this stuff, and I just feel like that bit is very long. It, it it's the same problem I actually have with the last duel, because <laughs> the last duel is in essence very very similar to Rashomon. I think I told you this when we got out of the theater. I was yeah. like, that was very similar to Rashomon, and you're gonna understand it when you watch Rashomon. I think you did it on the show on the episode we were doing. Probably too. Go back and listen to our last duel episode and our Ridley Scott director analysis, and. uh You'll 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 see what I mean. Indeed, but, but yeah. So spoilers, I assume, for Last Duel incoming. So if you yeah. want to watch that, we're watching and... Matt Damon's bit, which is the first bit, and it's yes. very long. And the reason it's long is because it's telling you the whole story, and then the rest of the bits are going to be shorter because it's only hitting the highlights. And mm-hmm. you're watching the whole story, and you're getting it all in. And I just feel like he's not hitting. Maybe it is intentional, but I feel like he's not hitting like the prime of his artistic ability as a filmmaker. Because then you go into the widow, she does her bit, and you have the bit where you have the 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 look that the husband is giving her, and like the darkness around him, and then the 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 one highlight on his eyes that looks really good, and it gives right. this emotion through just his face that's being conveyed so strongly. And I'm like, wow, that's that is an incredible piece of work right there. And then you get to the the part where the what is it? The shaman is like retelling the story from the dead husband's perspective and i like that for the most of it it's framed just watching this shaman with his voice speaking and that you don't do a lot of actual flashback because by this point we've seen it twice and you're going to see it a third time in a bit but then it does cut back to the bit where he is alone and toshiro mifune has gone to chase the the bride down and so he's stuck out there and he just feels he talks about feeling such shame and so like they just do this wide shot on him and he's kneeling down in the woods and the wind is blowing and the leaves are blowing around him, and he's—you hear his voice talking about the loneliness of where he is, and he just takes the dagger, and then he stabs him. And like they—they they, well, they don't actually show him stabbing himself, but he does the like he's about to do it, and he describes doing it. And I just feel like that—that that essence of loneliness that you're showing in that wide, wide shot, mirroring what he's saying—that's masterful. And then okay, you so do you're a lot of compliments, but I'm wondering what the drawback. It was the Toshiro. Is. It was the Toshiro Mifune part where he's retelling the story, 
and he's giving all the story. And I feel like it may have been intentional to just shoot it as simply as possible, just to give the story over completely, like to just tell it completely. But I felt like it it started to lack a bit watching that part, watching his part where he's describing everything. I it was starting to slow down for me and get a little boring. Everything after that's great. Everything before that's great. It's that part specifically that I felt critical of. Interesting. Yeah, I felt in the beginning with the farmer's retelling of him like finding it. That was the yeah. part where I wasn't connected entirely, I think, not entirely engaged. Sure. But then shortly after that, I was fully engaged. Like when Toshiro Mifune is giving his whole spiel. I think his part. spiel when it's on him in the trial, I think it's great. Yeah, that's when great. It's just, when it's on him and he's in the trial talking about it, he's great because he's a great performer. But oh, yeah, he's just the best. But when you when you go to the actual flashback where it's telling it bit by bit, it just it goes on for so long it becomes a little lackluster. <laughs> but I about that. I, I was engaged, it was. I think. Because it was the first, like you said, I mean, it's the first time we're seeing the story. So we have to see it from the moment that he like spots uh the husband and the wife and she's on the mm-hmm. horse and then he has to go and try and trick the husband. Mm-hmm. We have to see all of that play out. Um, and so I still think it was interesting because, yeah, we're trying to, at that point, as the audience, we know something has gone down. We're trying to pinpoint where it is that it all goes wrong since initially it seems like, oh, he's not trying to kill the husband. So then how did yeah. we get to the point where the husband dies? Uh, so I felt like all of that was engaging. Uh, and then, as you said, yeah, in the testimonial part, he's such a great screen presence. So he was very engaging there and then after that with each of the subsequent perspectives that we get i think all of those were similarly engaging mm-hmm. again because you're trying to stay really in tune to what are the differences what are the motivations for some of the differences why are we getting these disparities that are very huge like massive differences in the stories um and then as you said like a lot of the framing choices that he makes here and there are incredible fantastic mm-hmm. Even in the black and white, I mean, they shine through so amazingly. Oh, yeah. So I think all of that was good. And there was a point where, like, I consciously had the feeling of watching a master at work. Like, Mm. feeling that you have trusted yourself over to a master and the story that is being told is just fantastic and incredible. And rarely that happens. Like, to have the conscious feeling of, like, wow, I'm so engaged right now because the storytelling is that amazing that on point i mean that is great so yeah i I felt that uh i don't know like in the middle of it i think it was some point during the um maybe it was when the like shaman was on or right before that but i was just so engaged and also thing they do with like the shaman her hair there were parts of her that were like matted to her skin but like very Mm. distinct strands and that was super interesting as well like the attention to detail to make something like that which is Mm -hmm. At once, like a kind of off-putting, but so fascinating. And then you're again seeing like this very vibrant active performance. You're hearing the husband's voice come out of the mouth and being very like angry, recounting the story. Yeah. Like all of those elements working together, they were just so intoxicating, like so engaging. Um, and so yeah, all of that worked for me. And then I think just yeah, the overall themes that are being touched on here. One thing I did want to point out. I thought it was mm. fascinating was the gender dynamics, like in multiple of the perspectives. She's yeah. the one after getting 
raped. She's the one that's getting treated the worst instead of like the two men treating each other badly or treating the actual yeah. attacker badly. It was her that was getting the brunt of it. And so mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. And I was waiting to see. I was like, are, like it's 1950. It's a Japanese film. Are we going to come around and like have a moment for her to like actually stick up for herself and do something? I was waiting to see if we were going to have that. And thankfully we did. Like she mm-hmm. finally cracks. She's like laughing maniacally and then pointing yeah. out that both of them are cowards. This, this, and yeah. that. So the woodcutters. When you get to the woodcutters version of events, that is the best part of the movie to me. Because it's just such a change. Like, they're having that conversation. Then she gets that moment where she gets to laugh at them and call them cowards. And then she she makes them fight, essentially. Fight to the death. And it's just such a turn. Like, I remember the first time watching it, I was so surprised by the turn of them being, like, just complete cowards. And just, like, having the most childish sword fight you possibly could imagine. <laughs> I think it's just brilliant. Because you watch a lot of his later samurai films, and these are, like... These are like classic heroes. They have these swords. They're incredible warriors. They are fighting to the death. They are fighting for their lives, and they're incredible. And then you have Rashomon, and it's just so... First, you have that 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 essence when you watch the Toshiro Mifune story where they do the same battle, but they're, uh, they're actually like fighting like warriors. And he's even like, yeah, he crossed swords with me 27 times. That beats my last record of 23 times. He's truly mm-hmm. a warrior. He, I'll remember him for that. And and then you get to the actual real t- telling of events from the woodcutter, who is the only person who is outside of the events that are happening. He's just the bystander watching, and they're just they're just chicken shits, just like clashing swords together and running away, and they're scared of each other. I mean, it's just brilliant. Indeed, yeah. And that brings it to another point of. Another last dual comparison is we get the two Matt Damon's story, Adam Driver's story, and then we get um, the woman's story, Jodie Comer's. She, the like title card was, I forget what the character's name was, Marguerite? Something I believe like that. that's correct. Lady yes. Marguerite uh, is like her truth, and then it fades away and it just says the truth. Um, this one, we get something sort of similar to that where it's like very clear that the one that is closest to the truth is the farmer's accounting of events. But even that is unreliable to an extent, which gets revealed towards the end. And then that plays into the broader themes, which I thought was interesting. But let me just say this, unless maybe I have been misinterpreting this whole time, I always thought like what the big takeaway from Rashomon was and why people were so uh, just always amazed by it was that it touches on the idea of truth being subjective mm-hmm. and it being like just various perspectives. Everyone has their own perspective on the event. It's influenced yeah. by their own like biases and their own like point of view, like their actual position and then what yeah. context they have. Yeah. And it is not about that at all. It's just about the fact that people will lie, bald faced lie in order to save their own skin and make themselves look better. So it's nothing about, oh, truth is subjective. It's like people are willing to manufacture quote unquote truth if it is serving themselves enough. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. And I think that honestly is a bit more interesting because we see the, you first see the bandit, his testimony is first and he's like, oh, he's already sort of made, um, like made up with the fact that he's going to get killed. And so he's giving this story, giving his confession, basically. So you're like, okay, there's no reason to lie. If he's already like, he's admitting to crimes he's doing. So this probably is the truth. Then you see the woman 
And again, she's been attacked. She's a victim in this. Her husband's dead as well. You'd think she'd want to lay it on and make sure that the perpetrator gets the worst that it can. Why would she lie? But then you see that she does. And then the husband, again, he's dead <laughs> talking through a shaman. Why would he lie? Why would dead men lie? And then we see that he does. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's fascinating that each of these people, when you think they're already in a circumstance where they would be free from that urge to lie, that all of them still do so in order to make themselves look better or save face in a certain way. Yeah. So that's really fascinating. And then, of course, you see the farmer. He does the same thing where he's accounting the truth. Again, he didn't do it in the actual trial, which not great. And then he does it here to the people as they're getting rained on. And he leaves out the fact that he stole the dagger for his own purposes. So he leaves out that piece of information entirely. Um, and so once again, he's willing to admit information and lie in order to make himself look better or just not uh, incriminate himself. And then so everyone's sad at the end because they're like, wow, you are a liar as well. The one guy who was very cynical, which I thought was an interesting dynamic to have there. He's... yeah very cynical about the story um like untrusting of people's goodness like he mentions multiple times he's like there's no such thing as a good person and then at the end he steals something from the baby yeah um what exactly do you steal like the cloak or a blanket or something, something like that just whatever yeah. the baby had something stole from a baby um and then some money its id you know <laughs> took its identity it's lollipop it's lollipop from a baby. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he does that, and then he tells the dude, he's like, basically, oh, I know the dagger. You never mentioned that. Where'd that go? It had to be you. You had to take it. So he's like, you're a bandit. So that's what we all are. We're all going to lie and do awful things just to make ourselves better. And then we get to the finale where the priest is, like, trying to care for the baby. Everyone's sad because, wow, humanity just sucks based on that entire event. And then even the recounting of it, everyone showed their true colors and they weren't great and then the farmer reaches for the baby the priest pulls him back he's like what are you trying to do now you're going to take what little it has left and then the farmer is like horrified and he goes i have six kids of my own and i love this because you think in that pause there that he could maybe say that as a way to rationalize <laughs> like this is why i'm taking it i have six kids of my own i need to look out for these kids so i need to take like this blanket or whatever he has but then he says one more won't make a difference. So he's going to adopt the kid. He already has six of his own that he's caring for. It's going to be yeah. a whole lot of work, but he's going to go ahead and add one more uh, mouth to feed to the equation because that's the right thing to do because the baby is in need and he will provide for it and care for it. Yeah. And so there you go. Faith in humanity is restored. Mm -hmm. It's like, thank you for giving me that, for allowing me to have faith again. Yeah. And then the farmer walks off the rain has cleared. The sun's peeking out. It's beautiful. So I like he that. Takes, he takes the baby home and they eat it. No. <laughs> Horrible. Horrible. It's just yeah. Snowpiercer. <laughs> He's so vicious. But yeah, I think it's it's great that it's a very like cynical story for so much of it. Again, pointing out like humanity will, like humans will always embellish things and lie about things uh, to make themselves look better. Mm -hmm. but they're still good in humanity. They'll still yeah. step up. Even people that have done like bad things, like deciding not to testify for whatever reason, stealing that dagger, mm -hmm. they'll still do what's right. So it's a nice optimistic finale. Yeah. And I enjoy that. Sweet. Yeah. 
Yeah. It does a lot <laughs> with what it's got. Uh, shout out Toshiro Mifune for just killing it. I love when you first see him and he's just looking up at the sun. He's just staring at it. Mm-hmm. He's not really he's not really even paying attention because he just doesn't care. Just And then the bravado he has in that speech oh, in the trial. Sure. Just brilliant. There's something about the style of acting that Japanese actors had at the time with their, with the schools that they were in, the acting schools they were in. That's just, I think works so well with what they're doing. It's just so like a lot, like the emotions are very much like on the, the peaks and very much in front. And so when they're operating with, with a lot of strong emotions there, they can just do so much. And, and it just, it just shines through really, really well. And I love it. Mm -hmm. It's very stylistic, if you will. Since I'm a guy who loves some good style. You sure do. You sure do. Uh, but yeah, any other final thoughts you want to point out about Rashomon? Uh, really good framing in the end with the woodcutter and the two guys when they're in the the fallen house. I love the shot where the one cynical guy is over just breaking wood to take it home to start for a fire. And the other two are just still sitting with the story. And you have a big pillar just separating the two. Mm-hmm. Just looks really good, and then the rain's falling too to give it some motion. Just brilliant, always giving it some motion. That's what he always do. Never still, never still image. Always throwing Indeed. some wind in there, some rain, some snow, whatever he's got to do. Just giving it some motion. Indeed, got to keep it moving. Got to keep it moving. Yes. All right. So, out of how many pearl encrusted daggers out of five? Oh, I mean a full five. It's a it's a masterpiece. Oh yes, sir. I'm giving a full five as well. It's brilliant. You know, my critiques were. Very minimal. Like, like it was very, very slight feelings I was having, but still, masterpiece. Still great. Works Indeed. entirely. 100%. All right, moving on to Ikiru in 1952. So written by Kurosawa, Hashimoto again, and Hideo Oguni. And then in this film, which I think you enjoy a lot as well, you have seen it before. It's my I first have. time seeing it. Um, when did you first see it? Ooh, this is the most recent one I watched. I think I probably watched it maybe six months ago. So I remember oh, wow. a lot of yeah, it. Was, yeah. it, was, it was very recent, long. yeah. High and Low in Rashomon I saw a long time ago, but Ikaru was like very recent. Gotcha. Cool. So that would have been on my HBO Max that you saw it, right? No, it was on Criterion. I watched all of his um, movies on Criterion, except for Ron, which I have to own the DVD to because it's not available anywhere. Gotcha. Because I saw it pop in some of the watch list on HBO Max. And I was like, oh, I think I did watch it on your HBO Max this time. <laughs> gotcha. But all right. So yeah, go ahead and talk us through Ikiru. Your thoughts, through right. it, your reaction to it. So we open up on this guy who's a bureaucrat played by uh, Takashi Shimura. And he, uh, he just gets absolutely roasted by the narrator. And the narrator's like, this dude, he's got stomach cancer. And he sucks. And his life sucks. And he used to be passionate about it, but uh, he's not anymore. And they do the great shot where, like, he opens the drawer and it has the, it literally says, proposal to increase bureaucratic efficiency. And then his name on it, like, it has that on the paper. And then he takes Mm -hmm. that paper and he just crumbles it up and uses it to wipe something and then just throws (laughs) it away. It's it's very on the nose, but I really like it. And... Like, I love the, particularly the set design in that office. I mean, it's just so cluttered in such a good way that it really, like, shows how inefficient that bureaucratic system is. 
And basically, you've got this dude. We know he's got cancer immediately. They tell us right away, hey, this dude, he's going to die. Like, he's dying, he's going to die, and he doesn't know how to live. He, he's, he's alive, but he doesn't know how to live. And he's that killing already, time. He's not he's living, he's just killing time. That's, that's the setup for the movie. Like, it tells you right away, which I think serves to its advantage. It gets away, it, it tells you the lesson right away. It tells you exactly what the lesson is going to be because it's not about discovering what the lesson is. Kind of the same thing with Rashomon. It's it's not about finding what the lesson is. It's seeing how you get there, which I think is something that's very interesting that he does. It's about going on that journey with the character, knowing how it's kind of going to end, which is very interesting. And it does a lot of good twists and turns in that in that way. But anyway, you got this dude. He's just a bureaucratic slave, a mummy, if you will, just wasting the days away. And uh, his stomach hurts. His stomach hurts, Ryan. So he goes to the doctor. And I love the speech that the dude gives him about uh, how they're going to tell you it's an ulcer. And if they say mm-hmm. it's a mild ulcer, it means it's cancer. And and he gives this long, long speech about it, which is like, what a shitty thing to say to a person who's <laughs> waiting for results on stomach issues. Yeah, you might have stomach cancer, man. And if they say this specifically, you definitely have stomach cancer. And then he goes into the doctor's office and the doctor goes, don't worry, it's just a mild ulcer. And then he has that great one where he drops the hat and he just has, I mean, the face on this guy. Takashi Shimura, <laughs> Takashi Shimura is, because you, you see him first. You see him very first. He's just a bureaucratic guy. He has his normal face going on. He looks like a normal dude. But the second he gets, the second he has that, uh, he listens to the guy talking about stomach cancer to the end of the movie, the rest of the movie entirely. He has this look on his face and it is the saddest look you will ever see on a human being. Every once in a while he laughs, every once in a while he smiles, but for the most part, he just has the saddest expression of any human being that has ever existed. I don't think he literally looks like uh, the painting of the sad clown from SpongeBob. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. He's so sad. He is the embodiment of just sad. Like the saddest you could possibly be, his face is just the perfect Good. representation of it. He is like the one time when he's singing, when he's singing the sad oh song. Oh my God, dude. It's just a close up on his face <laughs> and, he, and he sheds one single tear. I mean, that's like the peak of acting right there. That's, that's just brilliance. Just that's what I'm talking about. Like, like putting those emotions to the very peak, to the very top. Like he is, he is pushing sadness to a whole new level he is showing it entirely he's not hiding it in the slightest and it's great yeah it just works so well because we can just we don't have to worry about guessing it's the same thing as the 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 lesson you don't have to guess what emotions he's feeling you know he's fucking depressed look at his face it's the saddest face in the world you know he's depressed but then you're you're trying to ask why is he sad in this moment? What is he thinking about that's making him so sad at this moment other than his stomach cancer? Where is he going to go from here? What's going to make him happy? Things like that. You don't have to worry about guessing at his emotions. There's no guessing there. You know what it is. He's just depressed. He's so depressed. Mm-hmm. But anyway, before we get there, we have this good montage where these women try to get their park, get this landfill turned into a park in their neighborhood, and they get the runaround by all the bureaucrats. It never ends. I mean, this is the longest montage you'll ever experience. They must go to like 15 different extras talking about going to the next guy, go to the next guy, go to the next guy. And it's great because it it, It it showcases this efficiency in the bureaucracy. And it also 
gives a little bit of a nugget of the story that's going to come later. Like it's it's dual serving, which is great. And it, it also shows like how worthless his life is. Like if he's not going to help people in his job that he has, and he's just part of the bureaucratic runaround that's not doing anything, what purpose does he have? What is life without a purpose? That's like the the thing. That's the question they ask. Right. Well, the, well, the thing. Let me let me rephrase this. They say his life is worthless right away. Mm-hmm. They say his life is worthless right away, and you're wondering the, what is the question that that is the answer to. And then the question you learn as you go along is that life without a purpose is what makes it worthless. And you you get there by following him through these different journeys he goes on with a lot of different caretakers while he has that cancer until he ultimately ends up uh, as an efficient bureaucrat with a purpose. And that is what gives him some semblance of life. But before we get there, he uh, he goes, he finds out he has cancer, and we get a couple of flashbacks where we learn more about his past. His wife died very young, and he has to raise his son all alone, and he never remarries. And he's also very absent when it comes to his son. I mean, he goes to his baseball game, but then he ditches him for the surgery. So he's he's a very absent father. He's a very work-oriented kind of guy. And he, he says he does everything for his son. And that's very apparent. And so he's just this dude who's just wasted his whole life. He's not there for his son. His wife was gone. He's just been working like a dog. I mean, just sad. Just real sad. This is a real sad movie, Ryan. Uh-huh. But then he goes to a bar. And he meets a guy there whose name I don't know. But this I dude is like some, he's some kind of an artist and he's talking to he's he's clearly interested in our main character, whose name I also don't know. It's and Kanji Watanabe. Kanji Watanabe. Well, he goes up to Kanji and he's talking to him about, you know, what's going on? Why are you giving me because he hands him like what, cigarettes? Something uh, like yes. that. And he's like, can I pay you for the cigarettes? And the guy's like, no. And then he's like, well, I'm dying of cancer. And then the guy goes, shit. And uh, he he gets a drink out for them and they start drinking, they start talking, they start talking about like the philosophy of, of happiness and, and living and all these things and, and how he's going to live before he dies. And then the dude takes him out on an also very long montage of just partying, which is also great. I mean, they <laughs> they go drinking, they go dancing, they see strippers. There's a great bit where we talked about earlier where he's singing. I mean, just the saddest thing you could ever imagine. Like, mm-hmm. just, just depressing, Ryan. Just very, very sad. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I do think this particular story, because again, it's sort of a classic story and it's a classic moral to the story of, yeah, like find something to do with your life that gives it meaning. And so mm-hmm. that has purpose. So you're not just wasting away. Um, and again, just killing time instead of living. So the trajectory that the main character goes on throughout this in order to learn that lesson, mm-hmm. I think this film does it in probably the best way that it can. Like mm-hmm. the the way that you get from A to B for this story, I think it hits on all the things that are necessary and that you would expect to happen. So once he learns that he dies, he's depressed. He like kind of wants to off himself. In the bar, that's part of what he was doing, I think, was he was, like, trying to drink. And the guy's like, dude, that is suicide. Like, you're going to die. You can't drink alcohol when you're um, battling that type of cancer. And then he's like, I don't care. So then he has to, as you said, like, give him that philosophical pep talk of, hey, like, you know, there's stuff to live for. Let's go out with a bang. And then so they go and uh, visit those, like, bar, uh, 
like parties, bars, um, mm-hmm. they indulge a little bit. Um, and so that's like the next step. Once you get yeah. over the depression and wanting to die immediately, then you just start living without any concerns at all. So you're indulging in all the excesses that you can. And then the next step is him maybe having another shot at romance when that coworker lady uh, who also hates the bureaucracy but is able to get out of it, like she quits. Mm-hmm. She's like, this is soul-sucking and draining, so I'm going to get out while I can. And then the two of them hang out quite a bit. Um, and again, he sort of is like romantically interested in her. But I don't think that's what it is. I would argue I, against. You would argue against? I think because there's the an whole inkling idea, of it. Because well, the, the, the two, the kid, the son and daughter-in-law, they think that's what's happening. Yeah. And again, I don't think it's an outward sort of like romantic thing, but I think it is I sort of think... like this is the last possible hoorah and he's just interested in being with someone that is so like lively and youthful as she is and so i think he's more interested in that like i don't think he's trying to like be with her and romantically he's interested in like her as a representation of being youthful and lively and going after what she wants and he's like at the point where he can't really do that so he's gonna attach his wagon to her for a bit since she is doing that i think he's trying to live life how other people are living. Like he sees people who are alive, who are truly alive. And he tries to do what they do to feel the same way they do. So he follows the artist guy through all this hedonistic lifestyle stuff. And he is continuing to drink throughout the night. And he's with a lot of women and he's dancing. And then by the end of it, he's in the car and he gets out and he just, he he vomits and he's not doing well. And the artist steps out of the car and he looks at him. And then there's a long bit where they share a look with each other. And the artist sees in his eyes, just in Kanji's eyes, that he's just even worse now, that he's he's sickly, he's sadder than he was before even, and that this is not the way for him to to do this. So they get back in the car and they leave, and then and then Kanji just gives up on that that idea of a lifestyle. He doesn't want to do it that way anymore because just they share this look that's just like, this isn't, this isn't the way to do it. You can't do my lifestyle and, and expect to live because you're a different person. You have right. to try something else. So the next bit is that he runs into into this cowork into this coworker, and she is very young and lively, and she has abandoned the bureaucratic uh, system, which is something probably deep down he's always wanted to do or thought about doing. And it's just like this idea that she's leaving this this job that he knows for a fact is boring and depressing, and she's going to live at this peak existence that she can and just live a more exciting life. And he wants to be a part of that. And live that life with her. And I also feel like a part of it is because she is so young, maybe he feels that he can deep down not replace but but relive parts of his past that he missed with his son with this girl who's so young. Like he buys her uh, new pantyhose and he takes her to all these things and does things with her. They take her to dinner, takes her to the games, they, they go out. And so he's like living this lively, exciting life of things she wants to do. And then also is engaging with the fact that she's so young in a similar way that his son used to be young like that, the the years that he missed out with him, and he's trying to try and relive that as well. But ultimately, he can't do that either because he's not young anymore, and that's just also not the life he needs to live. So then the next thing he does is he goes back to the bureaucracy, and he realizes that the only way to truly live is with a purpose, and it's got to be a purpose that he was designed for, which is to do the bureaucratic job, but at an actual efficiency in order to 
actually help people in a very selfless way. And I think that lesson of, of no matter what, no matter how you do it, the only way to truly live, you can't live a true life copying others. You have to live your own life by finding your own purpose. I think that's the important lesson of the movies that you can't live another person's life. You can only live your own and that life has to have a purpose in order to count. True. I think that's well said. Cause um, in the end was... of it, he's, he's living the same life he was before, but he had a purpose. Now he's still a bureaucrat and he's still doing the same job, but now he's doing it with efficiency and with drive and he has a purpose in it. I think that's well, great. yeah. And he's actually like serving people that are yeah. in the community and it's a meaningful work that he's doing instead of just busy work of the bureaucracy. He's actually leveraging the job that he has in order to help people, which is what should be going on anyway. Um, but yeah, so it's it's great that he is able to dedicate himself to doing that in his final days. And then we get a big old time jump about two thirds away into the movie to mm. when he's already dead and the playground that he wanted to make has already been completed. And then so much of the remainder of the film is the people at his like memorial or funeral thing. And they're talking about him and his work and why he suddenly had this big shift uh, towards the end of his life. And it's interesting to see the deputy mayor, I believe it is, that yeah. was trying not to let Kanji get all this mm -hmm. credit for changing everything. He's like, oh, well, this was his job all along. And also he was like sort of overstepping his bounds. Like it should have been this other department that's dealing with this, blah, blah, blah. And then all the other uh, people that are there again, trying to figure out why he had so much drive and determination at the end to get this to happen as quickly as he did. Um, mm -hmm. And so we get a few flashbacks as well to Kanji, like visiting the different departments and trying to do these things. But mostly in these like final 40-ish minutes, he's mostly absent. He's already just dead. And we're reflecting on um, what went on there. So what was your thoughts about this move here because i thought it was a pretty bold thing to do like when we did the time skip and i see this man's portrait and flowers placed around it, i'm like well yeah it's pretty crazy that's a big jump to do especially since like we already i guess completed his arc in the sense that he he made that choice to i'm not yeah. going to live with purpose but usually we would see him try mm -hmm. to carry that through and like face all the obstacles and try and overcome it but instead we skip straight to he's done that but he's dead and now we're going to have all these people that were around him reflect on that. So what was your I opinion think, on this decision? I think it was important because the choice he makes, he's being very selfless in all the decisions he's doing. He is, you know, sacrificing his credit and his uh, uh, the remaining life force he has to put this playground through and do everything he can to help these people. And I think viewing that from a different character's perspective rather than his perspective or an omniscient perspective puts it in like different terms. Like it makes it seem more selfless even so, because now you're watching it through these other people who didn't even realize it was happening at the time. Like they're, they're all talking about how great the park was and how great they all worked together. And then slowly one by one, they're all realizing, Oh, Kanji kind of did everything. Like we didn't do anything. The deputy mayor didn't really do anything. In fact, there were more obstacles put forward by a lot of us. And Kanji's really the one who pushed this through. Like, he's the one who put in the work and got it done. He right. really acted selflessly. And he got, you know, almost none of the credit at the time. And that's, you know, very, very sad. Like, he's getting credit now. But at the time, you know, 
nobody was even talking about him. They were all talking about the deputy mayor. Like, it's incredible that he did that. He did that knowing he had stomach cancer the whole time. That's, you know, incredible. And so not only do you do you get to uh, go ahead and peel that Band-Aid off a little early in the movie instead of the ending, the climax of the movie being him dying, you get to peel that off real quick. He's gone. And then you get to live with the lessons he learned after he's already gone in the same way that the other characters are living with those lessons as well. It's another thing Indeed. where they're they're putting the lesson right out front rather than hiding it in there somehow because you're experiencing it with the characters, those those other bureaucrats who are learning that lesson the same way that we're learning it at the same time, rather than you know he rather than Kanji learns a lesson two thirds of the way through and then we watch him deal with it, Kanji learns a lesson and then he dies and then we get that lesson hammered home back to us for the next third of the movie as the other characters are learning it as well to really make sure that point comes across clear and to really emphasize like how important that lesson is. Exactly. Yep, I think that's well said again. Uh, we also got to point out one of the flashbacks to Kanji. We do see a phenomenal, beautiful shot of oh, him man. on the swing. There it's- is... I'm looking at it right now on my wall because he grew on my wall. And the shot I picked is the shot of him on the swing through the monkey bars. Yeah. It's just amazing. Incredible. shot, And yeah, that's, that's the put it on the wall shot for sure. For sure. It was either that or just the close up of him crying, but that seems <laughs> sad. Yeah. That one's definitely a lot more uh, pleasant. And then you don't get sad looking at his sad face. Yeah. It's very evocative the way he's able to show that tragic, heartbreaking emotion. Um, but yeah, and then at the very end, we see all the bureaucrats. They are now trying to commit themselves to live in the same way Kanji did. Of okay, we're going to serve the people. We're going to do what we can. They're trying to, you know, essentially in his memory, live the same way that he did in his final months. And then someone comes in trying to get help, and then they're all like too coward uh too cowardly to actually go through with it but then doesn't doesn't end with one person running out there to try and save the like get the person to come back inside or am i misremembering something from way earlier in the movie i actually How does it well there end? i don't remember but there was a bit earlier in the movie where the guy <laughs> runs out to grab the women yeah, to come back i'm trying in to think if i'm paperwork. if they like did that again at the end to show like oh maybe there is like someone one of the bureaucrats is trying to help from what i remember it was all of them don't end up helping and they from what i remember them. none of them end up helping but i'm pulling up ikaru right now to pull up the last bit of it just to see because <laughs> now i am kind of curious in yeah. my own because i was wondering way. what the yeah like final sort of message would be if they're saying like yes yeah, so all the bureaucrats now are going to try and live in the same way kanji did and his impact you know reverberated even further by affecting other people and giving them more of a purpose to live or at least a more strong dedication to their job and trying to help the people or if ultimately yeah because none of them i guess are faced with the inevitability of their death in a few short months Mm -hmm. they find it easier to revert back to just doing the same old thing so i'm watching it and it's got uh they all turn him down and it's all very sad and then the one guy who was in the funeral scene who's like hyping up kanji the whole time is like super on his side and stuff Mm -hmm. he seems very sad that uh, they aren't giving any help, and he looks away. And then I, if I remember incorrectly, it ends with him. Uh, 
he's on the bridge overlooking the playground. He's looking down on it. And he's just oh, thinking, yeah, it's not- like it's him thinking about I think it's still a hopeful ending because he's thinking about the sacrifices that Kanji made and like what that was worth to him. And I think it means that deep down there was a change in at least one person, even though because the end of the funeral scene is they're all like, yeah, we're all going to do this. Yeah, we're all going to be great. And that isn't particularly realistic. Mm-hmm. It seems like something that they would say. And then, of course, they don't actually put that in the practice because the lesson is doing something like that is incredibly difficult. Being so selfless and being so uh, you know, forward in in trying to be the best person you can is a hard thing to do. And it takes a very strong person to do it. And so having that one person who was the guy championing the whole time for Kanji to like he even he can't even stand up and do it himself, but he's still impacted by the decision. He's on the bridge overlooking the the playground. And it's just it's like it's letting you know that that lesson hasn't been lost on him like the others. True. So, yeah, cool. still good ending. All so, right, so uh, how many uh, how many mild ulcers out of five would you <laughs> give this movie? I'm going to give it a four out of five. Four mild ulcers. Bullshit. It's a five out of five. I <laughs> want to know where that last star went. So the last star went with, again, the time jump that they do. I enjoy the idea of having bureaucrats talking and reflecting on Kanji and his impact. I think it might go on a little too long. I think, like as you were pointing out when you were describing it, they're hitting us over the head with the same message for the final third of the film. I don't know if we needed it to be that long for it, for it to land. I think it could have been shortened down. And it still would have came through effectively. But is then, it so, isn't it so impactful that it gets hammered down on them so hard and they're so impacted by it, but then the next day nothing's changed? I mean, I agree. That's a good decision they have there. I just don't know if we needed 40 minutes of them trying to switch over to the, we're going to try and do it, we're going to do it in his memory, only to have it deflate when they don't commit to it. Uh, it would have been, disagree. I think, just as impactful if they had shortened that portion of it down. Um, so yeah, for me, that's where it falls a bit short, but you gave it a five out of five. It's on your wall. So it's it is. in your top. One of my favorites. 25. Is that what it is? For sure. Well, Look it's like, it, well, the, the wall is at like 30 now. And then my letterbox, if you go on my personal letterbox is up to like 40. Gotcha. Well, there you go. The wall, the wall is behind. So another yeah. full five for you. Oh yeah. And now we can talk about. Just my absolute favorite Akira Kurosawa movie. It's another one I on the wall. wall. Yes, it is. <laughs> Looking at it right now. It's the highest Kurosawa film for you? Yes. But also, I haven't watched Seven Samurai in a long time, and I haven't watched Ron in a long time. And I've never uh, seen so it we'll Fortress. see next episode so if it gets adjusted. But... could be changed, yes. But we'll see i mean i watched seven samurai when i was like 15 and that was years before i even started this list and i watched ron when i was probably like 16 and that was also years before i started this list so it's very possible that those get added on i feel like ron definitely will i'm a little iffier on seven samurai just because i remember so little of it i remember being really long but uh (laughs) we'll we'll get there when we get there let's talk about high and low which i mean i saw maybe a year ago and was so impactful got added to my list it is so good. It was written by Kurosawa himself, Ryuzo Kikushima, Aijiro Hisaita, and Hideo Oguni, who also, Hideo Oguni also did Ikiro, yes? He did uh, Ikiro, yeah. Yeah. All right. This movie, man. I mean, just the first hour is a masterpiece. I agree. I think Alone. it's sort of undeniable. Like, that should be in 
pretty much any film class ever to talk yeah. about blocking and staging cinematography. I'm surprised it Amazing. wasn't. I, I'm I mean, also surprised that, yeah, we never ended up seeing it in any class. Because just the way so he, it's, because, I mean, he's known for how good he is at framing. And that hour is like the best framing he's ever done in his whole career. I mean, it's just brilliant the way he navigates that whole scene. Because it's an hour, well, it's a couple of different scenes, but it's one room for an hour. Mm-hmm. And it's just these characters moving around in the room. And there's a lot of times where, I mean, he'll just start on one shot and he'll move through three different shots, but in the same take, like he won't cut. It'll, it'll move. The camera will move and change the frame to go from like a wide shot of all of them into a close up of the characters back into a medium shot, back into a wide shot. It's so good. Some of the best shots are, is when uh, uh Toshiro Mifune's character is on the phone and there's a there's a there's one shot in particular where it's a wide shot and then the phone rings and he runs over and he grabs the phone and it follows his hand to the phone and then pans up to him as he's on the phone and then his wife is behind him and her right ear is to the phone and so you can see his face looking to the right her face looking to the left and they're perfectly framed in the shot and then as he's talking it slowly pulls back and it shows even more of all the detectives leaning in and leaning forward and then it moves around and all of the detectives move around i mean just the choreography of it is just perfect just so so brilliant and it is something that i learned from and something i will never forget because it is such a pleasure to watch it really sets the mood it sets the tension that's happening and it's just just so cool to see it's something that spielberg does a lot too those kinds of wonders where uh, he'll do it where the camera is static. It stays in the same place. And then the characters will move around in the frame to create different shots. And mm-hmm. things like that are also very cool. There's one like that in Catch Me If You Can that I think is great. And I just prefer that so much to the Warners where it's like just a tracking camera following people. I feel like that's become overused. But just this kind of styling where you're moving the camera to create different shots within one take is awesome. Agreed. I mean, you can't beat it. And then I also think the beginning hour is so effective on the like story side of it the storytelling screenwriting side of it oh for sure we get a great opening like argument between gondo again played by toshiro mifune where we have him and then the other board members of the shoe company and we're just thrown immediately into the argument that they got going on we're hearing Mm -hmm. them appealing to gondo to join them and overthrowing the ceo so if they're all together, then they'll have the majority stake or at least more than the CEO and they'll be able to outvote them and kick them out. Um, and then they are all also trying to reduce the quality of the shoes that they're making. They want to make them cheaper um, and just produce more and then also make them so that it's that um, what designed obsolescence or whatever it's called where planned obsolescence. Yeah. Yeah. Planned they obsolescence need to be where, cheaper made so that they can fall apart quicker so that people can buy more shoes. They, exactly. they say like. They say, like, they're the same as hats or purses. And he goes, no, they are not the same as hats and purses. <laughs> Women wear these on their feet. They walk on these all day. Exactly. It, it carries her weight. It carries her weight. That's the great line. Yeah, that's a good is line. Just, sure. hat is an accessory. The shoes carry her weight. Indeed. So, yeah, great writing there. A lot of yeah. great little nuggets like that. Um, and then, yeah, so we see his conviction that, no, we're going to have craftsmanship with our shoes. We're not going to just make them cheap and then try and get one over on the customers. We're going to build out um, a brand name that is quality and that they can trust. So we get to see his opinions on that. And that immediately aligns us with him because, yeah, we don't like the money grubbing 
executive members that are just trying to make the, everything cheaper. We said yeah, he actually course. has genuine care for what he's doing. So where you're immediately aligned with him. Um, but then we also see right after that, we get a little bit of that politicking that I'm such a big fan of as well, where it turns out he is already trying to plan his maneuvering to take over the CEO and become basically, yeah, the president, the CEO himself, since he's trying to get a majority stake. So he's borrowed against everything that he owns, his house, everything in his house, everything to his name so that he can get that majority stake uh, and kick out the CEO. And then, yeah, what's great. Wait, what's great is that up sure. until this point, all of this setup is already good enough for a story. You don't oh, even sure. need to, yeah. to change the story at all. You could make it about the politicking of the shoe company and it's still a great movie. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I was hooked from that very beginning. And then, yeah, the yeah. way that they stack this on is very interesting as well. Um, and then, yeah, we go one step further where we get to see the wife come in. And again, as you pointed out with Akira, sort of naming the theme very early on. Mm -hmm. um, and she goes like specifically says the words like success isn't worth losing your humanity. And at this point, again, we're seeing like, oh, yeah, because he's sort of getting like very obsessed with taking over the company. And uh, that can like maybe he's losing humanity there. He's not focusing on his family enough. So maybe that'll be the focus of what the story is going to be and what his arc is going to be. But no, it is dramatized much more than that because immediately afterwards, his son, so we think, gets kidnapped and is being ransomed for 30 million yen is what it was, I think. And of course, again, he doesn't have any money at this point since all of it is supposed to be going to buying up those remaining stocks that he needs. So yeah. we're already given that dilemma of you can save your boy. Are going to financial ruin. He's immediately mm -hmm. saying, "We're saving the boy. We're doing what we need to do." Yeah. But then we find out. So he goes. He goes. Don't call the police. I'll get the money. I'll find it some way. We're gonna get my son back. Exactly. And then, and then we find out his son walks into the room. He's fine, but his friend, who was apparently dressed up in his clothes, he's missing. He was kidnapped, and it's the son of Gondo's chauffeur. So now it's not his own child, his own blood that's been taken, but it is someone that's close to him like a chauffeur's son mm -hmm. yeah and my the favorite person thing is, is go ahead yeah my favorite thing is he immediately goes call the police <laughs> i know yeah well, immediately call the police things though as well he was like oh well like oh they got the wrong yeah. guy so he has a rationale to it yeah but the, the quickness of it the quickness of it does feel harsh <laughs> sort of but yeah he wasn't but saying like oh point. they'll kill the kid if i call the cops he's like oh well since they got the wrong kid, they're not going to do anything to him. So let me call the cops and just alert them to this. So it makes sense why he ended up doing that. But yeah, once we get the revelation that the kidnapper is still going to try and uh, extort Gondo and get him to pay the ransom, then we get the true moral dilemma of is he mm -hmm. going to try and save this kid or is he going to keep all of his finances and allow himself to take over that shoe company? So that whole hour basically is dedicated mm -hmm. to the detectives coming in and trying to start tracing the call and everyone petitioning Gondo for either doing the saving the boy or he's really, I guess the only one. And the mm -hmm. detective is sort of like, well, you don't have to, but Gondo's really the only one that's trying to be like, guys, we're going to be financially ruined. I'm going to be ruined. I'm going to start all over if this happens. And, and the so other we, guy, the, the assistant guy is also kind of pitching that as well in the first the, part. The right-hand man guy? The right-hand man, yeah. Yeah, he does he's that like, at first, like, and then 
he does switch over, which is interesting because... Well, the reason he switches over is because he also switches sides completely and he joins the other guys in the shoe company. Exactly. Because he's he, he doesn't even care about the boy. He only cares about his own interests. He just exactly. wants to see Gondo lose his money so that he's at a weaker position. He mm-hmm. He's the one who has sacrificed his morality for success. And mm-hmm. Gondo, God, I mean, just... Again, Toshiro Mifune just killing it i so mean good. my god watching him wrestle with this moral dilemma for an hour is incredible it is I mean, and I, I i love the way that they great. have the like the different characters that are trying to get him to save the boy like they're all coming at it for those different reasons you have the right hand man who's doing it for again his own selfish reasons you have the chauffeur who's obviously trying to save his own son and then the wife i like as well who's continually like you wouldn't do this like you're gonna pay the ransom like you just wouldn't allow this to happen. I know you wouldn't. And so then they have their fight. I also thought it was a really riveting argument when he was saying, I-, I could start over. I came from nothing, but you have always been wealthy and privileged. Like you wouldn't be able to. And she's like, no, 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 you're wrong. Like I thought that was interesting the way that he mm-hmm. was trying to leverage like her own history and her past and trying making it seem yeah. like the financial ruin would be, would be horrible for her. And so she should, looking out for her own interests, also want to not save the boy and so i love the way he was trying to like manipulate that in there so yeah just really engaging writing for that whole first hour as we talked about before the staging the cinematography all of that was immaculate yeah it's like if they had kept that going for another half hour just him having that moral dilemma until he finally makes a choice and then ended the movie there you can make that just the the greatest stage play ever written and ever and ever made like it would just be incredible Mm -hmm. i mean just it's just so good. Like I, I love things that are adapted from plays, and this is one that isn't adapted from a play. But that first hour really feels like it, it was. It was like it feels like it, it should have been because right. it's just done so well. So I, I, I guess the theatricality of it just feels so great. Sticking it in one location and just keep up in the stakes and really turning on the heat for this one character who has to make this very, very stressful decision. It's great. Indeed. It's just nonstop thrills. Also great mm. filmmaking. Just the framing. Just just the first hour alone is just just so good. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, it's pretty flawless. And I was wondering as I was watching it, I was wondering if the entire film was going to be dedicated to that. Because I noticed it was like over two hours. And so I was wondering, would they be able to stretch it out? And they don't. Obviously, they don't. Uh, keep it going for that entire time but with the way that they were nailing it through through that whole first hour i was like maybe they are going to go for it this entire time and maybe they're going to deliver because yeah they were doing so well up to then Um, i will say i think it would get old and exhausting after two and a half hours i think so too which is why i was thinking if they did go that route it probably would have been yeah just a 90 minute film um but it would have been so it's probably good that they were able to do that they decided to to change gears and go into first a pretty awesome train sequence. You I mean, the tension. In love with trains and sequences on trains. One hundred percent. I just think filming a movie on a train is just so cool. And then robbing a train, and then blowing up a train. <laughs> it's just all very, very cool. None of those things happen here. They're just on the train, and that's okay. If they had blown up the train, it would have been better. But <laughs> can't have everything, so it's fine. True. But it's still, Mm -hmm. you know, it is it is really well done. I mean, they set it up really well with having those two point seven five inch suitcases filled with cash, the very specific bills that they have to have. Uh, It's very, very cool watching like 
them the the police set up doing their job they have they put a guy out in front they put a guy out in back they're community they're communicating to each other in codes they're you know filming everything taking pictures of everything and and then like the way they they slowly peel the onion back and reveal the kidnapper's plan is is brilliant i mean he he tells him to go to the bathroom he's in the bathroom he's going to see the kid in, in at the window on one side and he's going to have to run to the other side and drop the suitcases out of the uh out of the window I mean, just very tense, very cool. Because you you really want them to catch the kidnappers because you're on Gondo's side. You you know that if they run away with his money, he's ruined. He's financially ruined. So the stakes are there for us as the audience as well. And then ultimately, he's like you you see he's still debating throwing out those suitcases. And then he sees the boy and just one of the best parts of the movie just without hesitation grabs those suitcases and throws them out the window. Just grabs them and immediately throws them out because he sees that the kid's still alive. And then, I mean, second best part of the movie, when they drive up to go get him and he runs out and he's screaming his name and he's running to grab him. Great. True. Very true. Yeah, It just I gives think... him so much heart that has, it hasn't been missing up until this point, but it's been very much like under the surface. Right. Yeah. Because that a whole mm-hmm. question of success isn't worth losing your humanity. We're wondering yeah. how much of that is still in them. And then we see yeah. Hear it in that completely. moment, yeah. His yeah, full humanity just shows completely because he can't control himself. He's just absolutely. like happy that he doesn't even care about the money. He's just so happy that he got the kid back. Indeed, yeah. And so that was very good. And as you said, just a brilliant way to have that ransom go down of them not even mm-hmm. being on the train and they have to throw it out the train. Yeah. I guess that was really clever. Very um, brilliant. And then it uh, carries over into the next few scenes where it sort of the film becomes a police procedural where we're seeing them trying to put together all the clues and all the leads of mm-hmm. where can we find this kidnapper? What's all the stuff that we know? So we see that big scene of them, uh, like all giving reports of the leads that they've uh, followed up till now and what mm-hmm. phone booth they think he called from all that stuff. And so that stuff is good too, because it's all very clever. It's nice to see them piecing together this stuff, yeah. unraveling the mystery. Um, it's also great because you have that you have a couple scenes in there where like they the detectives go to visit Gondo and Gondo they overhear that he's just in financial ruin because of it and that he he like is gonna lose the house and everything and that's all gone and like you like you have the the people who he took loans from they're like we're not gonna be left out hung to dry because you made this decision the public yeah, may love scene. you but but we're not <laughs> and we're gonna take everything and like the the detectives are overhearing it again great framing and then. Like you have that, you you not only have this great police procedural, but you have that uh, impact, not only motivating the police, but motivating us to root for the police. Like we want vengeance, we want justice for Gondo, so we're rooting for them constantly. Indeed, yeah. For most of that, uh, like final half the film, Gondo is not really the central focus anymore. But as you said, we mm-hmm. do get those brief, um, like visitations to him where we see the progression of him losing all his possessions and then getting hounded by the bankers and lenders and all that so that stuff's good um but yeah i did find it interesting with kurosawa he does really enjoy his scenes of characters reporting or summarizing events like we had that so much of rashomon is that ikiru with that final third is that and then with the police procedural we get so much of that as well and it's interesting when he chooses to like have things just be a report versus when he has things be something that they discover as it's happening like when they had the characters discover that the they like what was it exactly it was like the trolley passing in the background of one of the calls 
They yeah. like had them discover it instead of them just like reporting it to another person of, oh, here's what we found out. He had that scene be it where they're listening to it and then someone's like, hey, what about this? And then they're like, oh, this is new lead. So it's interesting when he chooses to have them be just reports versus when we are in the scene as they discover it. Yeah, um, I think there's just so them. much because he wants to show like the intricacy that went into this plan and how clever this kidnapper is. So the, there's got to be a lot of evidence required to pinpoint who this is. And I think there's just so many facts that they have to discover that he's just pumping them out really quick right away. Pumping out, you know, uh, finding out where the shade is in the phone booth to, to determine because he says it's hot in the booth. So they're like, which booths have shade for most of the day and which ones don't is these ones don't have shade. Uh, these ones have a good view of the house. Like just trying to pump out these facts, really just get them out there. It's just great. Indeed. And then uh, one other thing I wanted to point out, since we're talking so much about the framing, the whole scene where uh, the chauffeur and then the boy and then the two detectives, they're out like scoping the place, like trying to find where it was that he had drawn that picture. Mm -hmm. And then they end up coming across each other. And the way that, he uses again in just one take like it starts out with a wide and then he pushes in and up so the kid since he's so short we're now no longer seeing him he's outside of the borders of the frame we're focusing on the detectives and the chauffeur as they're talking about something and then we see the detective turn around look around frantically and be like where's the boy where's the boy and then pulls out and of mm -hmm. course the kid's not there great, great. use of just, yeah just the perspective that the audience is able to see because just like them, where they're focused on the chauffeur, we're pushed in. We can only see the chauffeur. And so just as the kid slipped out without them noticing, we couldn't possibly notice. So just like them, we're shocked of, wait, where did that kid go? So little moments like that, they're just yeah. scattered throughout and they're so brilliant. And even when, when they aren't as obvious as that, mm -hmm. you can always like subtly feel, again, just the work of the master um, yeah. giving you those those visual storytelling beats. So good. Mm -hmm. Yep, and they find the dead bodies, and then they're like, these are clearly heroin addicts, but obviously heroin in Japan is it's like very intricate how they explain everything, but heroin in Japan is very much cut, and so when a heroin addict tastes, like they are usually, uh, what is it, they have a higher tolerance to heroin, so they take a lot of it, but because mm -hmm. it's cut, it's still not a lot of heroin, so when you give them a higher, like a, a pure sample of heroin, but you don't tell them that, they'll take a higher dose of it. And not realize they're taking too much and overdose on it. And so they're they're like, this is clearly what happened. He gave them, you know, pure heroin because they have pure heroin. It's very, very rare to find that. And they wouldn't overdose on it since they're experts if they knew it was pure heroin. So this is obviously, A, it's obviously a doctor because he, he was able to determine how much to give them and how that would work. And so they go to the hospital and they find him because he has the mark on his hand that the kids saw a bandage over. So they find out who it is based on a lot of... Uh, a lot of circumstantial evidence that they just happen to be correct about. And then they find, they use that to their advantage. The fact that he doesn't know that they're dead to write them a fake ransom note and publish a fake ransom note so that, uh, he has to go buy more heroin and they can catch him a, in the act of buying heroin and b going to use that heroin to kill the couple. It'll be kidnapping drug, something drug racketeering and attempted murder. And so they would rack up more charges on him so that he'd be in prison for longer and hopefully get even a death sentence as justice for Gondo, who his life is ruined. And so then we get into that great, great sequence where they're they're just tailing him. Like, that's all it is, is tailing. And, I mean, the whole party bit is just filmed so well. When you have 
the the camera starting up on the mirror up on the ceiling and it slowly pans down to the rest of the party and then moves around to the other party and you see the guy he's got the mirrored sunglasses which looks really cool and then it, it goes back over to the guys who are coming in they put on the police officers who are trying to blend in they put on the little captain hats and they're walking through the party i mean it's just peak filmmaking right here i mean it's just so 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 well done i mean and then you and then from a story perspective it is interesting to see, like, because we spend so long in the beginning of the movie in this very elevated, fancy living room with this guy who's who's having these rich people problems that he's having. You know, his son is kidnapped because he has money. He has to decide between having money and getting his chauffeur's son's back. And so he's having these rich people, these, these problems that only rich people would experience. Like, nobody kidnaps a poor person's son. There's no reason to. And so we go from there and we slowly get more and more into the lower parts of society. We really get dragged down that actual hill because he lives on a fucking hill for whatever reason. And we get physically dragged down more and more into it until we're on the street level with the cops watching these things happen with these criminals as they're doing drug deals out in the city. And we get dragged down even lower into the recesses of the city where these people are just horribly addicted to heroin and the cops are brushing through to get this guy. And he is just, he kills another woman just to practice, just to make sure. And they catch him on that. So now they got him on murder. I mean, just, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. And it's great. <laughs> it's, it's all I can say. And then I will say the shot I have on my wall that I included is a shot of the detectives and Gondo on the phone. And it's just a really good looking shot from that. Cause there's just so many good shots in that whole sequence. I just had to mm-hmm. find one and that's the one I found and it still looks really great. But Outside of that entire hour, the best shot in the movie is when the kidnapper is going to break into the house and he's scoping it out from the bushes and it's a close-up on him and he's in the bushes and he has the mirrorless glasses on. He looks so cool and intimidating (laughs) and because you can't see his eyes. And also, all I can think of is how do they film that? You're filming right at a mirror. Where's the camera in the sunglasses? Because I can't find it. It must have been disguised. Because you just can't see the camera at all in it. And so it just looks awesome. It's a great shot. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then they ultimately capture the kidnapper. They got him. And then the ending scene is where Gondo and the kidnapper meet. And it's an interesting way that they approach this. Because, uh, again, Gondo hasn't been the central focus for like the past hour at this point. But he does come back around. He's gotten his money back at this point. He has always had the public admiration once the story broke big. And then he has been able to start over. Like he did get kicked out of the company, but he's starting. He was at like some other company, right? Uh, so yeah. he's, yeah, he was able to start over, has all of his money back. So uh, yeah, he's in a fairly good place, all things considered. And then the kidnapper, certainly not in a good place. He's going to get executed, right? I think they're yeah. going to end up taking him down for that. So he, is meeting Gondo. They said that the kidnapper requested Gondo to come, right? Yes. Yeah. So he wanted to show Gondo. He wanted to uh, come off as being completely courageous and unbothered by everything that has happened. Um, like he's not going to go down fearful and terrified and remorseful and all this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, as he's going through the conversation, I mean, you don't believe him when he's saying it, but then he starts freaking out and has to get dragged back into the cell into solitary confinement uh and gondo is just left there watching the shuttered 
window. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a, a little bit of a downer ending at the end there. So what was your opinion on how they closed that off? I feel like like the whole point of the movie is a it's supposed to be an anti kidnapping message, of course. Like why kidnapping? Because because the whole idea that Akira Kurosawa wanted to make was that like people didn't talk about kidnappings a lot in Japan. And he was like, I want to bring more attention to this. Like this is, is like, that true? He, kidnapping wasn't yeah talked about. Well, in Japan. I mean, it's just like it's just like murder gets so much attention. Like you kill somebody, you get a lot of attention. You you. Uh, you know, you sexually assault somebody, you get a lot of attention. But if you kidnap somebody and the person ends up unhurt, but you get away with someone's money, you know, it doesn't get a lot of media attention, but it, it like affects people's lives. Like their money is gone now and they have no money, but they, like they have their loved one back and it's great, but their lives are ruined because a lot of their money is gone. And so he was trying to draw attention to the harm that kidnapping can do after the fact, e even if the person comes back unscathed, like what kind of damage that could do. So there's that bit of it. But then it's also like, talking about the economic inequality in that society at the time and probably still today in most societies, honestly, and like commenting on what economic inequality feels like from both sides. And you have Gondo, who is this righteous character who is, you know, he is in his own world in the beginning. You know, he's living in his own bubble where he doesn't even think about the lower class down the hill. And he is just concerned with all of these all this politicking he's doing involving his money and taking control and making shoes and stuff as righteous as he is he's not concerned at all about how the other half is living and you have this character who is living down at the bottom of the hill and all he can think about is gondo he is obsessed with this man on top of the hill who doesn't have the experiences what he's experiencing and he becomes so obsessed that he wants his money and he tries to kidnap his son so you have just this 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 idea of how corrupting money can be to a person and like the effect that money can have and like the 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 desire what the desire for money can do and you get to this ending and he's because it becomes such a personal thing for him like you hear it on the phone calls and you hear it in like the way he talks at the end of the movie how personal it was that he wanted to kidnap gondo's son specifically because of how often he stares up that hill up at that house and for him to end up losing so horribly in which, you know, even though Gondo doesn't have his job and is out on the, out, you know, from the, the, what am I trying to say? He's, he's <laughs> like, he doesn't have his job and I'm losing my train of thought. I got fucked up. I, I was on a roll and then I got <laughs> fucked up. You're good. You can bring it back together. You got this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So he loses his job and all that stuff, but he's still in a pretty good position because he still has a job at a different shoe company that he's expanding to eventually take on his old shoe company. And he has all of his money back except for a very small percentage of it. So overall, it's safe to say that Gondo has won in this dispute between the two of them. And he's still trying to save face and show him up and be like, you may have your money back and you may have all these things, but... I still was able to get to you. I was still able to to take your son and, you know, like, like just trying to show him up and stuff. But ultimately that feeling of losing just gets to him and he just starts shaking violently and screaming because he knows he did all this work because it just got to him. Like, like all the, the idea of this money just got to him and it broke him. And he got to this point where he was kidnapping this guy's son and killing people and it just, it completely broke him. And now he's going to pay for it with his life. Like he got nothing out of it. Cool. 
So money's dangerous, man. Money's real sure dangerous. Is. Indeed. Uh, and then I did want to point out one other thing, which yeah, you were touching on, but the name High and Low, great. it's a great name because yeah. yeah, it's obviously pointing at the wealth disparity, which is physically showcased in the city by him living on this big hill up high while everyone else is down low. Um, so that's a great reflection of, again, just the disparity that's going on there. Mm. But then also the phrase searching high and low, whereas they first are searching for the kid and then they're searching for the actual kidnapper. Mm. So it's got that double meaning of touching on the themes that it's exploring, but then also yeah. like the crime drama, police procedural. You love to see it. You love Just a name that title. hits on double meanings. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So okay. obviously, since I love this movie so much, I think you can see where this is going. Out of how many ransom payments am I going to give this? I'm going to give it five ransom payments out of five. Now, now, Ryan, what about you? What are you going to give this movie? Can I so, guess? Uh, I'm sure. going to guess four and a half. It is going to be four and a half. I you had a feeling. We're very close to bringing me up to a five. Um, just because, yeah, you're whole passion speech about really them going down deeps in the depths um later in the mm -hmm. film as they're trying to get the kidnapper and then also i think the way that you pointed out the kidnapper's obsession he was so obsessed was with gondo it was so personal like i love that bit where he went. i love that bit where they're trailing him and he's just about to go to kill the people and he stops and he sees gondo out on the streets in like the city like he's in the lower parts of the mm -hmm. city now and he sees him and he just wants to go up to him and he just talks to him like he talks to him about something we don't even know about but then he watches him and he's just part of him has to be just like content with the fact that gondo was now down there in the city instead of up on his hill like he had that feeling of contentment and then he went to finish his plan to go kill the people and he got caught right but yeah and you're you're pointing out yeah that whole obsession and it became so personal that at the end he wanted to bring gondo to him so that he could try to win on one battle at least and like show that gondo shouldn't be pitying the kidnapper at all because oh he's he's not really scared about dying or mm. he's just not regretful about doing anything like he wants to win at least something because he's that obsessed over it yet ultimately he still fails because then he's violently shaking in front of him and it shows that mm. he is bothered by all of it and as you said yeah he wasted mm. his whole life trying to um claw his way up but ultimately he failed and i think that part is like super interesting and honest you know what i'm gonna give it a five I'm yeah, gonna let's go because think about it. i mean i mean gondo chooses humanity over money and this guy is so clearly choosing his money money over his humanity and it rots him out and like you see that happen to him slowly over the course of the film and gondo just rises and rises as the movie goes he becomes high and then the guy who's low becomes low like it's just <laughs> it works on a third level right i mean it's 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 a perfect movie i mean it's just so it well done yeah, the one it's the, the part only that was movie, the only movie that I think touches on wealth disparity better than this is probably Parasite. Well, yeah, because and I noticed from your Parasite thing as well, like they do the same thing in the city where the inequality is rendered via the city, like the house is up high, and then yeah. during the flood, like they're having to go down below the city, where of course the flood is, you know, actually messing things up. And then, mm -hmm. of course, the rich people, the flood doesn't even matter to them. And they're upset that. Yeah. And they're like, thank like, God for this. That flood just created all this great weather. Look at how exactly. beautiful it is today. I love it. Yeah. So shit. they're completely out of touch. And yeah. So it's interesting that this film, they also do that same thing and that you picked up on. Yeah. The way Gondo is going deep in the depths. He's no longer mm -hmm. a pie in the hill. 
he's brought down below. Um, yeah. That's super fascinating that you picked up on both of those. Because, yeah. But he's, he's, but he's okay similar. down in the city. He's not like, he's not a fish out of water. He's okay down there because he chose humanity over his money. He is, Indeed. in essence, more of a humane person than he is a rich person. So he's able to walk around in the city and be comfortable. And, like, he's just checking out shoes. He's seeing what's newest on the catalog. He's out for a stroll. He's doing perfectly fine. So maybe in a way this guy comes and he goes up to him and he's like first initially happy to see him down there in the depths, but then maybe it bothers him to see him that he's down there and is doing okay and that he's not hurt and that his, his, he's not just like shriveling in fear of where he is in life. And so maybe that's why he wants to see him again in the prison. He wants to see him one more time to, to really see that fear on his face. But then Gondo gets there and Gondo is unfazed because he mm -hmm. is, he is a righteous man. And this man is is one who values money over humanity, and so he, he sees this confidence in Gondo, and he just can't can't help trembling. Yep, yeah, ah, it's I so think, good. I think the first like hour obviously is flawless, and that first thing, the train sequence oh is great. God. I think the initial police procedural is super great too. Again, it dipped lower for me because of the, I think the when the detectives and the chauffeur and the boy are out and about. Sure, and then yeah. tailing the kidnapper. It, I think that weakened it a bit, but I love pointing out kidnapper just because I think it's so cool. Well, yeah, you talk movie. very highly of that part, and I think yeah, the certain scenes that you called out, like certain shots, were amazing, of course. But yeah, the yeah. scene you point out of him spotting Gondo there, and then the final conversation between them, I think you were able mm -hmm. to touch on what the intention was thematically yeah. and what it all meant uh, with yeah that obsession, and it's upsetting yeah. because yeah, it's obviously. It is easier for a man like Ando to be righteous, given all his wealth and like the head start yeah. that he has. And then the kidnapper has to look up at that on a daily basis from his apartment and um, be dealing with all that stuff. Yeah. He gets so it's, obsessed and he's still like, even at the very end, uh, he has to see the man that um, gets to be righteous, right? He is ultimately going to be okay. He's going to live his life even better than before because now he does have that like righteous piece of him that's more intact. And then he is stripped of everything. Like he became a murderer. He did all this horrible stuff. Um, and yeah, it all was for naught because he's still completely poor, completely hated by everyone, and he's going to die alone. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's just a great way to cap off of, yeah, he was trying to have one final victory mm -hmm. where he was like, oh, I don't care. I'm not bothered. I'm unfazed as well. You can't like take that part of me. But no, he even... Uh, was broken in front of Gondo, which was probably the worst thing as well. Like showing that, mm -hmm. yeah, he hates that his life did get destroyed. Um, and then Gondo got to witness the culmination of all that. Yeah. That is very good. It's very powerful stuff. Yeah. So I yeah. think, I think it's Logan's interesting because we've been, that's perfect. I love that. It's, it's interesting that of the three movies, this is the one that I think probably has, more of a subtle message to it because and i think it's because you get so wrapped up in the police procedural that it's kind of hard to think about the deeper meaning behind a lot of things because just the, the detective story itself itself alone is very engaging for mm -hmm. me the slowest part was definitely when the detectives and then the chauffeur and his son were both out trying to find the house because it goes on for kind of a long time and yeah. it is a little bit slower compared to the rest of the movie and i know you felt similar about a lot of the tailing but I loved it just because it gave us an insight, more of an insight into who this guy was as we're following him around and like w the lengths he's willing to go to to get away with this. And then it also it also lands on that scene where he sees Gondo and goes up to him and talks to him. 
And I think like if you didn't have that scene, it would probably be a weaker sequence and it might even drag mm-hmm. the movie down to a four and a half. But that scene really it sells it brings you back from the police procedural into the the theme that Gondo's wife brings up immediately. Are you willing to sacrifice humanity for success? Or in the case of the overall theme, are you willing to sacrifice uh humanity for money? Indeed. There you go. High and low, full five from each of us. It's awesome. on your wall. So top twenty-five. I'm sure it's high up there. Your it's your uh, favorite for Sala, at least for right now. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three. It's number twenty-four on my wall. There you which go. I think you think it's about right. I think it's about right. Yeah. Nice. Of course, that might not be accurate because I did add more movies that aren't on the wall. So I'd have to check my letterbox. But if you want to know what my top, I think, 40-something now list is, go check out my letterbox. I don't remember what the the, the at is, but you, you, I'm sure you could find it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you can do is it's on our box office show. You are one of the people we're following on that You're account. Right. You're one yeah, of the first so few people. So, there, yeah. yeah do that and then follow we also our need to box add... office show letterbox and then through that follow the following people and find dylan johnson and then from there you can find my list true i also think we can add other people's lists to our account somehow we'll look into that oh, but yeah if we can yeah add my list that would, that would you be... can start your own indeed indeed but yes we will update our letterbox to include these films. For um, sure. But yeah, we had full fives for Rashomon, a five. You gave all fives for I did. all these films. Look at that. You gave, gave all five. fives for the next Akira Kurosawa <laughs> one too, I'm telling you right now. Except for maybe Hidden Forges because I haven't seen it yet, but we'll see. Gotcha. I'll, I give Akira a four. And then on high and low, we both gave full fives. I was brought up from a 4.5 for our conversation, so... This is the first time I think that's ever happened on the show, in your case. I think before you've convinced me to raise or lower my score one way or the other, but I don't know if I've ever actually successfully convinced you to change your score after the fact. Gotcha. I think maybe it's happened, but this is the most significant. Yeah, I'm glad that this this is what won you over. I'm glad I was able to do it. Because a four and a half, nah, man, it deserves a full five. (laughs) This movie's fucking brilliant. I mean, just the the first hour alone, even if the rest of the movie was dog shit that first hour alone is so perfect it reminds me of full metal jacket where the first bit of it is just so great and yeah, then you get the second part it's so different but in high and low second part of it is also great and in uh full metal jacket it's only okay yeah it's definitely more of a like standard vietnam yeah. war film but that first yeah. half like you said yeah is oh, very so good. incredible but cool yeah. That is all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show, you can email us at theboxofficeshowpod at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. If you like the show, please give us five stars on whatever podcast app you're listening to. And be sure to tune in next week. Some point soon in the next few weeks, we're also going to be doing our part two to this episode, where we're going to be talking about the samurai films of Mr. Akira Kurosawa. Stay tuned.